0: Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. Welcome back, you lovely folks. How have your weeks been? Personally, I am in that weird zone where you're just about to finish a project and you're hustling to get it done, but also kind of anxious and unsure about what to do when you're actually done with it. Bit of an existential crisis, if I'm honest, but irrelevant. So today I want to talk to you about the neuroscience of migraines. If you have ever experienced one, you know how unbelievably horrible and debilitating this condition can truly be. And it affects a crazy amount of people around the world, with the World Health Organization reporting that approximately 30% of adults who have reported headache disorders are afflicted with migraines. That's a lot of people. (laughs) But if you don't know, a migraine is a severe headache generally characterized by a pulsing or throbbing sensation on one side of the head. It can be accompanied by nausea, vomiting, and intense sensitivity to light, sound, and sometimes smell and touch. But it doesn't end there. Some individuals experience auras as a warning signal that a migraine is coming. They see bright flashing dots or lights or even blind spots in their vision. Some experience tingling skin or change in their speech patterns or even ringing in the ears. Can you imagine just like getting a random blurry spot in your vision when you're driving or something like that? That's terrifying. I used to suffer from random bouts of vertigo where I would get dizzy and nauseous for absolutely no good reason in the middle of the day. And it wasn't like I'd stood up and I hadn't eaten enough or I was dehydrated or anything like that. Like this was really random. And I went to my doctor, and she told me that apparently one of the causes that she was considering for this was atypical migraines. Effectively, I would be experiencing one of the secondary uh, symptoms of migraines, but not, like, the actual headache pain. It was very weird. But migraines actually have phases. The first is the prodrome, the pre-headache stage. In this stage, people experience changes in their personality, such as problems concentrating, irritability depression, difficulty speaking or reading, trouble sleeping, unexpected fatigue, increased urination, or muscle stiffness, which is really just like a a grab bag of symptoms. Uh, These can last for a few hours or even a few days, but it is followed by the much shorter aura phase. The aura phase is exactly what we talked about earlier. It's characterized by these bright lights, tingling skin, potential temporary vision loss, or some people just call it like a funny feeling. Unfortunately, the next step is the headache, which can last up to three straight days and is identified, as you could have guessed, by unbelievable amounts of pain, as well as dizziness, nausea, sensitivity to light and sound, and some speech changes. And if that wasn't bad enough, any bad experience must be followed by a hangover. These migraine hangovers can last a few days and can be defined by being unable to concentrate, feeling depressed, or even feeling euphoric. Maybe because you're not in extreme pain anymore. Migraines can occur anything from like once a year to several times a week, and pretty much anywhere in between. It very much depends on the individual. Some, unlikely few, are afflicted with chronic migraines, while for others, it can be triggered by stress, by a lack of caffeine, changes in the weather, hormonal shifts, changes in sleep patterns, or really any other reason. Kind of sounds like a hard thing to study, doesn't it? So let's dive into the neuroscience underlying migraines. So for a long time, the prevailing understanding is that migraines are caused by activation of the trigeminovascular system a system of small sensory neurons that connect to blood vessels in and throughout the brain and the dura mater, which is just a thick protective membrane that covers the whole brain. A bit of like a little cushioning. When these small sensory neurons are activated, they release several vasoactive neuropeptides that can cause neurogenic inflammation. In short, once these neurons are activated, they cause the blood vessels in your brain to vasodilate or expand. Ouch, pressure. Activation of these sensory neurons also leads to activation of second-order spinal cord neurons that in turn connect to brain structures involved in the perception of pain. And after all of that occurs... It's thought that there's a wave of activity by groups of these excitable brain cells that results in the release of serotonin, an important neurotransmitter in the brain. This serotonin causes subsequent vasoconstriction or narrowing of the blood vessels. And for a long time it was thought, and it's still thought today, to a certain extent, that it's this pattern of vasodilation and vasoconstriction that's that results in the pain of a migraine. In fact, the throbbing pulsating quality of a migraine is thought to be caused by the mechanical changes in the blood vessels. But oftentimes, the headache actually outlasts this oscillating contraction dilation, meaning that there might be something else at play here. This finding also makes sense if you think about common migraine medications. Specifically, I'm talking about Excedrin, which one of my friends takes. Um, Excedrin contains acetaminophen, aspirin, and caffeine. The first two you might know as common painkillers, and the second is the same ingredient that's in the coffee that you drink. Caffeine is a known stimulant that makes your blood vessels narrow and may counteract the symptoms of migraine vasodilation. It's an easy explanation at first, but as science has progressed and we've learned more about the condition, scientists have come to realize that the cause of migraines is actually much, much more complicated. Let's start with the aura phase. So it's thought that auras, that intense fuckery that happens with your vision and your senses, is brought about by a disturbance of the cerebral cortex, the front part of your brain. And specifically, I'm talking about the theory of cortical spreading depression, as it was proposed by Brazilian neuroscientist Aristides Liao. And I really hope I'm saying that right, and I'm very, very sorry, and please correct me if I'm not. Now before I launch into the intricacies of this theory... Um, which I'm going to call CSD from now on, mostly, I want to pay homage to the neuroscientists that we have to thank for these discoveries, the giants on whose shoulders we stand on. Aristides uh, Azevedo Pacheco (laughs) Liao was born in 1914 in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and passed away in 1993 after an amazing career as a neurophysiologist, researcher, and university professor. He was born the youngest of seven siblings and raised by a single mother and his uncle. After recovering from a bout of tuberculosis in his youth, he headed to the United States to Harvard Medical School, where he promptly earned his master's degree and doctorate in science. It was there that he identified the phenomenon of spreading depression. The following year, he chose to return to Brazil, not to stay at Harvard, uh, where he went to the Biophysics Institute. There he continued his research. There's a, a pretty cool story that his instruments in his laboratory were salvaged from scrap metal, but they were so carefully maintained that they were always ready for use. And if that doesn't say something about the man, I don't know what will. Aristides had a long and illustrious career defined by directorships, and he was president of multiple organizations, and he had emeritus appointments at universities until he died in 1993. He was an amazing man who defended scientists and science in the face of things like military dictatorships and other hardships. But let's go back to CSD. Cortical spreading depression is a short-lasting depolarization that moves in concert across the cortex, the front part of your brain, at a rate of about five millimeters per minute. In a sense, it's a period where the neurons are all briefly excited together and then are all depressed for a prolonged time. And this phenomenon has been observed in patients with migraine auras using a variety of neuroimaging techniques. So the synchronous wave of neuron depression is associated with dramatic failure of brain ion homeostasis and it's thought to play a role in the oscillating constriction and dilation of blood vessels in the brain by activating that trigeminovascular system I talked about earlier. Now, I wasn't able to find a very clear explanation for why CSD results in the migraine aura specifically. Most papers I read just kind of said associated with or was observed in patients with migraine auras. But I can imagine an explanation in which you have massive shutdown across your cortex, be it visual, auditory, somatosensory. You might see or hear things that aren't there, like the general symptoms of auras. You might get blind spots or something else. But it might be that we just simply don't know the connection. The joys of science, y'all. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. So what causes CSD? Turns out, CSD can be evoked by a wide variety of stimuli, including mechanical stimulation, injury, electrical stimulation, metabolic shenanigans, etc. Much like migraines have many causes. And unfortunately, we don't know why CSD might be spontaneously evoked. Excuse me. In a seemingly normal brain. More holes. So we don't exactly understand why CSD might be evoked, which would lead to activation of the trigeminovascular system, which would lead to that uh, oscillating, vasodilation, vasoconstriction. That could be the explanation for why migraines are so painful. Cool. Okay. But it turns out that there's also a secondary theory. It considers that the migraine aura and the headache are parallel processes, not sequential. This theory postulates that migraines are caused by dysfunction of groups of neurons towards the back of the brain that control pain perception. There have been a few findings that support this idea. First of all, electrodes placed in this area for treating chronic pain actually can cause migraines in people that don't normally experience them. Second of all, there have been multiple imaging studies that have kind of supported this theory. But we have no idea how activation of this group of neurons could possibly lead to activation of that trigeminovascular system. Now, fascinatingly, migraines have a strong genetic component. First of all, they are far more prevalent in females than males, something like two to three times as prevalent. It appears that the gender divide occurs shortly after puberty, bringing into question the role of hormones such as estrogen in migraine development. But we don't completely know why. It's the theme of the day. Now, there's something to be said for the gender bias in medical research. It's no secret that women at times have more difficulty in accessing medical care, and that results in a knowledge gap. We simply know less about migraines in women than we do in men. I'm not going to lie. I've noticed this in my own research sometimes. The project that I'm actually currently working on, we have to use male mice because that's what we've always used, and we're not sure if female mice will behave differently. But studies published as early as 1972 have discussed the role of fluctuating female sex hormones, estrogen, as an important driver for migraines. Specifically, these studies found that five days prior to the onset of bleeding in the menstrual cycle, estrogen dropped, and that drop was related to the triggering of a migraine headache. Sex differences in migraines are a powerful idea and an active area of research that I'm woefully not talking about too much in this episode. But it really is fascinating, and I highly recommend doing your own research if this is a field that's interesting to you. I pinky promise I'm going to do another episode examining sex differences and how they impact research in the next few months, but I might not focus on migraines. But beyond sex, there's also a genetic component. So far, Two to three genes have been identified as causing rare forms of migraine. Uh, they are CACNA1A, which I'm going to be calling CACNA, <laughs> um, and ATP1A2 and uh, SCN1A. I will not be referring to them by these names because I cannot remember them anymore. And all of these genes encode ion channels and transport proteins, important, func- uh, important things in the general function of neurons. It's pretty cool, right? Dysfunctions in these things might make the brain more susceptible to cortical spreading depression, a phenomenon that's thought to coincide with aura symptoms. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of migraines. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I have omitted a lot of information in the interest of time and brevity, and if this is a field that is interesting to you, I highly recommend doing some of your own research. Start with the papers and the relevant sources I've cited in the show notes and see where you go from there. Also, check out Instagram for any cool pertinent figures. Please rate and review and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at Neuroscience Amateur Hour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones. And if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching and I hope to see you again.